Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. All right. Good morning, guys. Good to be with you. Got beautiful weather here, right? Amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, just finishing up the offering. Yeah, just to uh, just to speak one other thing into what Pastor Crystal was, was saying. <clears throat> we love uh, we love when when we encounter God in worship. Um, emotions and things arise. There's no doubt about that. Um, but we got to just make sure that that what's happening is not just emotion, but that we are really centered on the Lord. Um, that's really important, or else it, it, it there can be a lot of things happening, but it's quite shallow. And so uh, we just really felt that we needed to just slow down and just look at Jesus for a moment. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. All right, we're gonna uh, we're gonna keep teaching on Pentecost. Woo! <laughs> no one else is excited about Pentecost. No. Two people? No. <laughs> you know, we, we celebrate the Father, and rightfully so. We celebrate the Son, but um, a lot of times, I, I think I might have mentioned this, it was Francis Chan who actually penned a book called The Forgotten God about the Holy Spirit. A lot of times, I'm um, not really sure how, how it fits in, but Holy Spirit is, uh, as I've said before, he's not, a, he's not a feeling, although feelings do arise when you encounter God. Uh, he's not just a force, although he's powerful, but he is a person. <laughs> And so we're, we're getting ready for Pentecost where we're celebrating the coming of the Holy Spirit. Not that he was not active. He was very active uh, on the earth. But there's something unique about Pentecost where what he was in the Old Testament in part, it came in its fullness. So next week, next week is Pentecost. Literally Pentecost is, uh, the word means 50th. So we're 50 days out from the resurrection of Jesus, uh, which is 10 days after the ascension. And Pentecost is where the Spirit of God is poured out. <laughs> God's Spirit is poured out, and this is a promised period. This is a prophesied period. Um, the, uh, we went through in the, one of the first weeks. This was longed for by the prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel. They longed for this day. Jesus himself also created an expectation for when the Spirit would be poured out. And when the Spirit was poured out, we entered into the age of renewal, the age of restoration, the age of revival. Uh, it says in Revelation 21.5, Jesus says, Behold... I make all things new. <laughs> That's how it ends. He says, behold, I make all things new. Well, I want you to know at Pentecost is where all things being made new really began. <laughs> it's where the Spirit was poured out. And one of the things that we've been emphasizing is that the Holy Spirit is the agent of renewal, right? So desire alone will never bring about change. It's good to see, have desire for loved ones in this community to change, but it is only by the Spirit that things can be changed and revived. The Spirit is the agent of renewal, but it is the church which is the instrument that carries the Spirit. God in his infinite wisdom has decided to pour out the Spirit on a people who would then be carriers of that Spirit. And everywhere we go, it would be like rivers of living water flowing, touching what is dead and barren and dry and being resurrected back to life. So we're in the age where we are carriers of the Spirit and God has called us to go. Behold, I make all things new. That's what it's all unto. That's where it's going. So Pentecost is where we... We celebrate and we remember where God poured out the Spirit and he endowed the church. He graced or gifted the church with power from on high that we could be bringers of the kingdom. All right? 
So at Pentecost, we're baptized in the Holy Spirit so that we could be endowed with power to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. And last week, last week we looked at Jesus who sets the example of our need for empowerment for ministry. Jesus, fully God, but fully man. And we won't go into that again, but we ex really taught on that Jesus actually lived as a man and he sets an example for us. Uh, everything that he did, he actually did as fully dependent on the Father and the Holy Spirit as any man would. That's the hope that we have that we can now follow him. Uh, he emptied himself, Philippians 2 said. He, he actually uh, voluntarily deprived himself from drawing from his deity, but he relied on the anointing of, of the Spirit. And what we looked at is the connection of the book of Luke and Acts to see this example. And Jesus was always born of the Spirit. Uh, uh, he, was always, he was conceived by the Spirit. This we see at his birth in Mary, but it was at his baptism where he was anointed with the Spirit. So that's the second work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. And what we see in the church is it's the same principle. We see the church is born of the Spirit and we confess Christ, but there is a second work, a second grace, if you would, where then we are clothed with power from on high. And one of the things that we mentioned last week at the baptism of Jesus is that when Jesus came up out of the waters, he prayed, and if you remember, what happened to the heavens? They were opened, right? Now, the way that Luke words it, it doesn't quite capture the intensity. Mark really gets it by saying that the heavens were rend open when Jesus came up out of the waters. What that means, rend, means split open, ripped apart, torn open. And the idea is that when Jesus came out of the waters and prayed and was clothed with power from on high by the Holy Spirit, the heavens were split open. It was an unrivaled eruption of the Holy Spirit from the heavenly sphere to the earthly sphere. We had never seen anything like this before. That's the idea. Never before had the heavens been rend, and never before had a man been touched by the Holy Spirit like Jesus was at his baptism. So much so that John, in John chapter 3, verse 34, John says, Jesus, he carried the Spirit without measure. So, so John put language to what happened when the, when the heavens were rend. John said, this man, Jesus, walked in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He walked in, this, in such a way with the Spirit that there was no limit, there was no restriction. That is what was happening when the, spirit, when the heavens were rent open, the Spirit came down. We had never seen anyone uh, uh, um, journey with the fullness of the Spirit. The Old Testament shows the Spirit coming on men for seasons, for specific reasons, but never the fullness in the way that Jesus has. Now stay with me, this is important. Come with me to John 1, please. And then we're going to go into Isaiah, where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 31, but just so you, so you understand my train of thought right now. At the baptism of Jesus, which set an example for the need to be clothed with power from on high, we went through this last week, when the Spirit of God was released, it was, there was a tearing of the heavens symbolizing never before had someone been touched with the fullness of the Spirit like this. How, how was it different for Jesus? One, he had the Spirit without measure, but two, we're going to see another statement that is made here. John the Baptist, he was a forerunner who prepared the way for Jesus. And the two greatest statements that John ever made is found in this account that we're about to read in the Gospel of John. The two greatest statements, number one, which we're not getting into today, but John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
It's the first greatest statement John ever made regarding Jesus. The second one is he says, this is the man who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to read. So let's pick it up in verse 31. After John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 31, John says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So the Gospel of John is unique in that we actually don't have the, the literal account of Jesus' baptism, but this is where there's a reference being made in the Gospel of John. And so we're going to find out what John saw, what happened when Jesus was baptized in the waters, the anointing. Verse 32, and John bore witness, John the Baptist bore witness, and here's what he said. Very important. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So remember we said the Holy Spirit came in bodily form. Holy Spirit did not come as a dove, but like a dove. Like Jesus is like a lamb. Holy Spirit's like a dove, but he actually came in bodily form. And the Holy Spirit clothed him with power from on high. And John says, I saw the one who the Spirit descended and remained. And then verse 33 says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me. Now this is the Father's commissioning over John's life. This is what the Father said to John in preparation. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John says, I saw the one who the Spirit descended and remained. And John says, the Father told me, the one who I see the Spirit remain on, that's the one who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Why is that so significant? John makes two statements. The other one was John 3. He said, I saw the fullness of the Spirit was on this man and the Spirit remained. How was the breaking in of the Spirit on Jesus' life different than any other Old Testament character? It was in its fullness and it remained. It did not go. And why this is so important is John says, the one who the Spirit rested and remained, that's the one who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Which means the way that Jesus carried the Holy Spirit is what he's now baptizing us into. We're not, we're not being baptized into an Old Testament figure's anointing. It was the anointing that was on Christ. The one who bore the Spirit without limit now gives it without limit. The bearer of the Spirit now becomes the bestower of the Spirit. It is glorious news. The one who the Spirit rested in fullness and remained, John says, that one, the same way it was on Jesus, he's going to baptize you in the same way and you're going to carry the same Spirit. My friends, this when we talk about being endowed with power, we're talking about Jesus, Jesus sharing this with us. Do you know that God's grand purpose in salvation is that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters? Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In other words, the son, Jesus, came to share his sonship with us. <laughs> now, you and I have not received a second-rate sonship. Do you know that we're actually adopted as co-heirs with Christ? Now, what I just said has an unending list of glorious realities with it that we share in the sonship of Jesus. But one of the things we must see is part of that is that we get to walk in the anointing of the Spirit that he opened up for us. The same way he carried it, we get to carry that Spirit as well. <laughs> Guys, this is part of our inheritance 
Part of our inheritance as sons and daughters is that we would be a, an extension of the anointing of Jesus and continue this ministry, which we saw clearly last week. So my heart is I want to provoke a hunger in us to, uh, to long for the spirit without measure. <laughs> the spirit without measure. Like what would it look like? And we're going we're to look at a scripture. of What would it look like for the fullness of the Holy Spirit? What would it look like the life of Christ? <laughs> and what would it look like for the body to be operating in this? And one of the amazing things is that we're not left guessing as to what the fullness of the Spirit is. Uh, Isaiah 11 is actually a prophecy that was fulfilled at Jesus' baptism, and it talks about the sevenfold Spirit that came on Jesus. And the sevenfold Spirit, which means the fullness of the Spirit that came on Jesus, that's what Jesus wants to baptize us in. Yes? We need the sevenfold Spirit moving in our body. <laughs> We need the fullness, not that we don't have, but we want everything activated. We want every function and effect of the Spirit operating in our body. We must have it. So come with me to Isaiah 11, please. You guys tracking with me? Isaiah 11. And then we're going to pray. We're getting insight from Isaiah 11 of what Jesus carried. And again, what is he baptizing us in? This is, this is the one who baptized us, is the one who carried what was listed in Isaiah 11. Now, how many of you have ever read this prophecy? Some of you read it? Okay, the initial fulfillment was at Jesus' baptism, as I said. And I just mentioned before that this is a scripture on the sevenfold uh, it's called the sevenfold spirit is one of the names for it. Now, I want to be abundantly clear. There are not seven spirits. There is one Holy Spirit. Uh, the word seven is symbolic for fullness, completion. So the sevenfold here, it's actually one person. It's the Holy Spirit, but these are seven functions. This is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This is what was resting on the life of Jesus when he came. Now, again, in the Old Testament, you had people who were endowed with power but the Spirit came in specific ways for specific reasons. For example, on the 70 elders that helped Moses judge the people, the Spirit of counsel rested on them. Or you have in the judges, like Samson, the Spirit of might. You're going to see that's another one we're going to read. The Spirit of might rested on Samson. Or Joseph, who was able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh and come up with a plan to avoid famine. The Spirit of wisdom rested on Joseph. But no one had all seven. <laughs> no one had the fullness of that. But when the heavens were rent open, there was a man who walked in everything of the Spirit. And then that man at Pentecost will pour out the Spirit on his church. Amen? <laughs> now, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm just going to highlight these in, in a moment. I'm going to highlight them today. My, my main thing is just to provoke a hunger. We've actually talked about a lot of these things. But, um, but I'm, more than anything, I want to just provoke a hunger for us to long for, for the sevenfold spirit, if you would, the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness to rest on you individually and us as a, as a community. Um, one of the things that you may have heard about with the sevenfold spirit, it's a reference, there's references made in Revelation. Have you guys ever read the first few chapters of Revelation? It speaks about the seven spirits of God. Now again, Revelation is highly apocalyptic. It's highly uh, uh, based in imagery and symbolism, Okay. When it talks about the seven spirits of God, there, it mentions it four times in the first five chapters of Revelation. 
I want to be so clear. There are not seven spirits. There is one Holy Spirit. It is a reference of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some incredible statements made about the seven spirits of God. Number one regarding the Holy Spirit is that it's forever before the throne of God. Holy Spirit, in the book of Revelation, what we see is the, the, the Holy Spirit is forever dwelling in the throne room of God before the Father. The Son is at the right hand, the Father's on the throne, the Holy Spirit is right there in the mix because he is God himself. But one of my favorite statements that's made about the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold, in Revelation is chapter 4, where it says, there were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God before the throne of God. <laughs> so the Holy Spirit is pictured as a, this sevenfold burning torch that is forever before the throne of God. This is why the heavens had to be torn open, because never before had the seven burning torches of fire come upon an individual like this. This is what came on Jesus at his baptism. The seven burning torches of fire, the Holy Spirit, fell on a man, and Jesus was a burning fire in his generation. Now, uh, what I'm about to share will add so much depth to what we're going to read, and I really, I'm just going to ask you to track with me on this, because there is something the Lord was showing me that is so beautiful that will, I believe, just encourage our hearts for God desiring to pour out his spirit this way. I want you to know that in Revelation, when it talks about the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit as a burning fire before the throne room of God, the entire throne room of heaven is a picture of a temple. It's a picture of, of a tabernacle. Hebrews confirms this. And I want you to know that every time a tabernacle or temple was uh, built on the earth by God, God instructed someone to build it like Moses, Everything they built and put in that tabernacle or temple was actually meant to be a reflection of a heavenly reality. Are you with me? So in the throne room, you've got God on the throne, the Son at the right hand, and you've got the, the burning Holy Spirit before the throne of God. God then instructs a man like Moses, says, I want you to build a tabernacle on the earth, and you're going to build everything so that it's symbolic and a reflection of the divine blueprint of heaven. So Moses, when he builds the temple, what does he do? He creates the Holy of Holies as God instructed, which is a picture of the throne of God. And then on the other side of the Holy of Holies, there's a veil, and then there are several things Moses puts in the holy place where the priest would function, like the showbread and whatnot. But one of the things that Moses puts in there, instructed by God, is the menorah. The menorah, how many of you guys know of the menorah? The menorah, God, you can go to Exodus 25 and see how God instructed Moses to create it. The menorah was made out of gold because anytime something gets close to glory, it's always covered in gold in the scriptures. And he takes it and he says, Moses, this is what you're going to do. Moses built a menorah and some of you may have a visual, but I want, there's some specific things I want you to see. When he builds the menorah, he's told to hammer out the base and there's a central shaft that comes up. And at the top of that shaft is a, a lamp or a torch. <laughs> And then as you come up the central shaft, there are three branches that come on one side, three branches that come on the other side, making a total of how many across? Seven torches. <laughs> so think about this. You've got the Holy of Holies, God's throne on the earth, and then God instructs Moses to put a menorah right in front of the throne as a burning seven torches before the throne of God. And the priests were told to not let that menorah ever go out. They had to keep the fire burning morning and night. Why? It is a picture on earth of what is happening in heaven. The menorah was representative of the sevenfold spirit of God that is burning like torches before the very throne room of God. 
And here's, there's so many things that come with this, but here's what the Lord is really, one of the things God was speaking to me. The, the pattern is this, wherever there is a temple, there is always meant to be the fullness of the spirit burning bright. <laughs> so when it was in heaven, that was the case. When God created a temple on the earth, made with human hands, he created shadows and symbols, but the same, the principle was true. He was saying, wherever my presence dwells, wherever there is a temple, there is meant to be the sevenfold spirit burning brightly. So we should not be surprised that when Jesus comes on the earth and the scriptures say, Jesus is the tabernacle of God, he was the temple of God, Jesus was literally the embodiment of the Holy of Holies. He's the Ark of the Covenant with flesh and bones and blood. We should not be surprised that when the temple was on the earth in fleshly form, that God sent the sevenfold burning spirit on him because wherever there is temple, there is meant to be the fullness of the Holy Spirit burning in there. So Jesus, as the true temple, tabernacles among us and, and becomes a living reality of the heavenly reality, Jesus dies, resurrects, ascends, and now who is the temple on the earth? The church, <laughs> which means it is God's desire that as we, as the temple, we should also see the sevenfold burning spirit in our midst. This is God's will. This is God's will. Where there's temple, the fullness of the spirit should be burning bright. And as we as the temple, God says, this is my heart, that we would see it here. Now, one of the things that I think is really amazing is that the menorah, the priests were called to keep it burning. And again, the Lord was really ministering to me on this, that the priests could not keep one or two or even six of the torches burning. They had to keep all seven burning. And I, I, for me, the, something the Lord is ministering is we need all seven functions of the Holy Spirit operating in our gatherings. Not just here. What we're going to find is these things are not just for like a gathering. These things are meant for when we go into the marketplace and in our homes, in our communities. We need, we need all of this resting. The spirit of wisdom that rested on Joseph. I mean, Joseph used that to, to, uh, to, to work in a kingdom that was, that was honestly working counter to God. And he used it. And they saw the wisdom on his life and they wanted him. We need men and women rising up in the business place, in the marketplace, that have the spirit of wisdom and counsel and understanding, the spirit of might but we can't just afford to have one or two. We need all of them. Here's, here's a few. Why? One, number one is we need this to navigate the times that we are in, guys. The Lord is really speaking to this. We, like, based on the times we are in, we need this. We need the spirit of knowledge right now. We need the spirit of, we need God's wisdom in this hour. We need the spirit of understanding where there's so much deception and confusion. We need a church that has the spirit of understanding resting on them. So that's the first reason we need all seven. The second is they are very interdependent on one another. Actually, let me just show you this, even though we're not breaking them open yet. But if you look at verse 2 of Isaiah 11, it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's the central shaft of the menorah. That's how many have viewed it. Now look at it. There's three pairs. Do you notice this? The first pair is the spirit of wisdom and understanding. It's number one. That deals with the mind, intellect. The second one is the spirit of counsel and might. And then the third pair is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And what you will find is that if you take one of these away, where we're not actively seeking or opening ourselves up for the spirit to work this way, you can open yourself up to a lot of deception or imbalance and danger. We need all of these things to be operating. Amen? All right. 
Everyone there, let's read this. I'm going to dig in. Chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, I just remembered something I wanted to share. <laughs> Sorry. I promise we'll just highlight these. The priests were, kept, were meant to keep the menorah burning. How did they keep the menorah burning? They had to supply oil. Now, I don't want to over-allegorize anything, but as I was sitting with the Lord, I feel like the Lord was really speaking to me of the oil of intimacy. And, and so we're going to see, the, the, this is so important, that if we're going to see the sevenfold flowing, the way we cultivate and see it burning bright is intimacy. Really, really important. Jesus told a parable of ten virgins, five wise, five unwise. It was a picture of the church. The dividing line was who cultivated oil in their lamps and who did not. And I believe it's the oil of intimacy that we really need. So we are crying out for God to pour something out. Like there's actually like an event, if you would. It's Jesus in the spirit, but there's something we're asking for. But from that encounter, we need to steward it with intimacy. That's how we see this burn bright. Or else we can have a powerful encounter and then we can move on and it's going to get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. But as we cultivate intimacy, oil just fuels the fire that God has poured out on us. So let's read verse 1. We'll start here, Isaiah 11. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Okay? Stop right there for a moment. The first thing Isaiah says is, sounds kind of peculiar, but it's really powerful. I've mentioned this before. But any time we read about kingdoms in the ancient Near East, they are often equated to trees, tree language. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus does this himself. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed, and as it grows, it becomes a massive tree that gives life to birds and all, all else. You'll often see in the prophecies and the scriptures that kingdoms are, are, are symbolized by trees, meaning the stronger a tree or the type of tree, the stronger the kingdom. All right? This isn't even just for, 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 the, for the Israelites. This goes to all cultures in the ancient Near East. This is how they would, they would speak about kingdoms. Now, what's interesting is Isaiah says here, I see a stump. <laughs> I see the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse is the father of who? It's a quiz. David. So what he's saying, what Isaiah says is he's talking about the Davidic kingdom and the dynasty of David where the Messiah would come forth from the line of David. This is 300 years after David, and what Isaiah sees does not look good. He sees a stump of a kingdom. He sees a stump of a Davidic dynasty. He says it's, it doesn't look good. The, the future of Israel looks bleak and hopeless, but then in the midst of it, it's like Isaiah says, stop, wait, look again. And if you hear what he says, he says, I see a shoot coming forth from the stump of Jesse. He says, I see a tender little plant coming down from this cut-down stump. And what he's actually prophesying to is Jesus and the obscurity of how Jesus would come, not as an established oak of righteousness, but he would come as a baby in a manger, but this little shoot would grow and establish the kingdom of God on the earth in all of its fullness. <laughs> I just, let, let me encourage you with something, um, not what we're getting into, but there are many promises I know in my own life that when I look, I expect to find fruit and I see a stump. <laughs> I want to encourage you that the stump is a sign, though, that God is still, he's still working. That what, what Isaiah is say, saying is God says, I will not abandon my promises. Even though you see a stump, keep believing, keep pressing in. Do not, de do not despise the day of small beginnings. 
It comes up like a tiny little thing. It says, oh, is this it? And God says, no, no, stay faithful. Stay faithful. Keep believing. Keep holding to what I've said. This thing will grow. So he sees this tiny shoot coming up. It's, a, it's a, really a prophecy about, about Jesus. And ultimately, if you keep reading Isaiah 11, which we're not, you find out that this King Jesus will ultimately bring a global restoration. It's amazing, Isaiah 11. It talks about he's going to establish righteousness in the nations. He's going to fill the earth with God's glory. He's going to reverse the curse. He's going to uh, renew Israel, and he's going to open the door for the Gentiles. I mean, the list goes on and on. But here's the question is, how would he do it? How would this man, it's emphasizing his humanity. He's going to come from the line of Jesse. How will this man bring about renewal and global restoration? And the answer is found in by being anointed by the Spirit. But what else? <laughs> the Spirit. <laughs> and I said this last week, and I'll say it again. Pentecost, and this, a text like this reminds us, the sole machinery necessary for the church to really be the church is the Spirit. It's the one thing we actually need. Everything else right now, guys, is a luxury. Like, uh, we've learned this in, through, uh, through COVID, the, 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 the taking away of places to meet and whatnot. It's beautiful. We love that. But what we learned is it's a luxury. There are places around the world, they do not have the luxury to meet openly like that. Nevertheless, the kingdom of God is exploding, and they are filled with the joy of the Lord which tells us these are, these are luxuries, not necessity. The one necessity is that we would be clothed in power with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's the one thing that we actually need. It's the sole machinery necessary to actually be the church. Man. <laughs> it's, I feel the Lord just welling up a hunger for us to cry out for the pouring out of the Spirit for this. <laughs> What this is telling us, Isaiah 11, is nothing else could produce change. Guys, nothing else will produce change in this city than a people, a yielded company of saints to the fullness of the Spirit of God, walking around and releasing that when they talk to people through their words and laying hands on people. This is what will see change. So I, wasn't, I actually am going to share this. There's something really impacted me, and, um, and then I promise we'll read these seven things. <laughs> And it'll be quick. I, I, I. This is just, just the beginning now. Um, this, is, this is really important. The Lord, the Lord connected something that we're saying. The menorah is representative of the, of the seven burning torches, which is the Holy Spirit. It was always meant to be before the temple. There is an amazing prophecy in the book of Zechariah that deeply impacted me this week. How many of you have ever read Zechariah? Some? Some? All right. I, I, like, it's such a good book. I, I, I have never done a deep study, but I'm coming back into it. And Zechariah 4, I'm just going to paraphrase for this. I encourage you to write it down. Verses 1 through 10 of Zechariah 4, this is what happens. Zechariah has an encounter with an angel. Now, the background of Zechariah is that Israel has come out of captivity, and they're looking to rebuild the temple. And so there, there's, there's a lot of challenges that come with this. It is a, it, there's threats of, of the enemy attacking them. But nevertheless, they're going to go forward with it. And Zechariah begins by saying he has an encounter with an angel. And he makes an amazing statement in verse 1. Zechariah 4, verse 1. He says, the angel woke me like, like a man who was awakened from his sleep. So what Zechariah is actually saying is, I was not sleeping. He had what we would call an awakening experience. In other words, Zechariah, when you have an awakening experience, you are alive, but you were blinded to a 
a revelation or reality or a truth, like you weren't walking in it, you were numb to it, or maybe you knew it in mind, but it didn't really take root in your life. And then you have an awakening experience where this thing like just starts burning inside of you. And this is what's happened to Zechariah. He says, I was awake, but it was like I was sleeping. But this angel awakened me and brought me into a revelation that I did not understand. And I believe the, the way that Zechariah was awakened, God is doing it in this house, in my life, in the church, across this nation. And what he showed Zechariah, guess what he showed him? <laughs> he showed him the menorah. <laughs> he showed him the lampstand. It was a little bit different in that the priests weren't keeping the oil. It was actually flowing right from an oil, uh, an olive tree, which there's all reasons we're not getting into for that. But nevertheless, he sees this menorah. He sees the seven lamps, and he sees it burning bright. And then he asks the angel, and he says, what does this mean? And the angel says, you don't know what this means? <laughs> At that point, you know, when someone tells you, like, do you know what this place is? You say no, and they say, really, right over here? And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know that. You have no idea. When the angel of the Lord tells you again, wait, you know what this means? It's like, oh, no, no, I got that, I got that. <laughs> but he had no idea what it meant. And the angel said this. He said, this is the word to Zerubbabel, who was the leader to rebuild the temple, which was an impossible task, it felt like. It's the famous verse. He says, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, he said. And he said, tell Zerubbabel that the mountain before him will fall. Tell him to speak to the mountain, grace, grace, and the mountain will fall. Now, that was for an impossible task. I understand there was a specific context, but I believe God is awakening the church to the revelation of the need for the sevenfold spirit, that we would be awakened and say, oh my goodness, the task before us to, to release the kingdom of God, it will not be done by power. It will not be done by might, meaning it will not be done from human reasoning, human wisdom. Like we don't have enough wisdom to see God's kingdom on the earth. It'll be done by one way, dependence and reliance on the Holy Spirit. And how God awakened Zechariah was saying, Lord, would you awaken us to this? That our eyes would be opened up and say, oh my goodness, God, we can't, we can't draw from our own strength, Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. So let's read these seven things quickly. And then we're going to pray. And keep longing to see all of these function. Are you guys following me? All right, like I said, I'm not even going to... Uh, I won't even adequately summarize these, I feel, some of them. So I'm just, just going to kind of speak some of them and provoke a hunger. Here we go, verse 2. First thing that comes on Jesus, it says, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So the first thing it says is the Spirit of the Lord. Now, Holy Spirit is comforter. Holy Spirit is friend. Holy Spirit is... Uh, he's many things in our life. He's a teacher, but Holy Spirit is Lord. It's the Spirit of the Lord. We are to be led by the Spirit. I have found that life works out when I come under the Lordship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, life seems to break down in the wrong way when I try to do it my own way. The first thing that comes on him is the Spirit of the Lord. And there's something else I just want to mention briefly on this. When the Spirit of the Lord comes on you, that means it is the Lord's Spirit. So it's not a spirit it's not even the Spirit, it is the Lord's Spirit, God himself clothing a people. <laughs> and what that means, I think two things for me. Number one, the Spirit of the Lord clothing a body will bring us deeper into unity and unite us to the Lord because it's him clothing us. And the second thing is it will deepen our relationship with him, but it will also then further separate us from the world. Now what I mean by that is not that we disengage, we actually fully engage the earth, but we are separated in the sense of values, priorities, um, there's just, we're pursuing something different. And Paul said in Ephesians 2, 
that every single one of us in this tent, every single one of us in this tent, Paul would say, prior to Christ, he says we were dead in sin, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But we were dead in our sin, and he said we were following the prince of the power of the air, which is a picture of Satan. So I thought I was just living it up prior to Christ. Paul would say, actually, you were under a different kingdom, and you didn't even realize it, and you were bound. And he says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul says, prior to Christ, we were actually operating under another spirit. But when the spirit of the Lord comes on a people, there is a separation from the world. There is a purity, a righteousness, a holiness that flows that I believe, yes, many don't want, but many actually find everything their heart is looking for in that. There actually becomes a dividing line when the spirit of the Lord rests on a people. Where they say he, that we, we, it's like God puts his name on us. We belong to the Holy One. We belong to Yahweh. So the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's the central shaft. Now here are those branches that come off. The first pairing is the Spirit of wisdom and the Spirit of understanding. Let's talk about wisdom first. Wisdom is not merely acquiring knowledge, but it's applied knowledge. We need the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. <laughs> Have you guys ever been in a situation where it seemed wise, it seemed practical to do ABC, but sometimes God starts at L? <laughs> he just has a way of doing things. We really need the wisdom of God. The, it says God's wisdom seems foolish before man. The cross is the greatest picture of God's wisdom. Wisdom, biblically, does not just, it's not just a mental activity when we have the wisdom of God resting. By the way, this is different than words of wisdom, in the sense that a word of wisdom comes in a moment, this is actually wisdom resting on a life. So everywhere you go, wisdom is just like, it just drips off of you. I, I've encountered certain uh, men I've listened. They're not the most educated. Guys, this is really encouraging for me. They're not the most educated people, but they have the spirit of wisdom. And when they speak, it's profound. Do you know that Stephen, Stephen, when he said he moved in power and grace, God was moving mightily, and in Acts 6.10, it says those who opposed could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit that was coming forth when he spoke. When he spoke with wisdom, they were confounded. Like, God confounds the wise. Those who are willing to say, I am foolish, he will pour out a wisdom that is beyond any human wisdom. But again, it's not just even in this context. We need, we need leaders in the marketplace who have the wisdom of God who when there's things breaking down, like border issues and other things, God raises up influential individuals who can go with God's heart and God's plans and God's strategies. And actually it becomes a place where God is glorified through that. Um, wisdom, so it's not a mental activity. Wisdom is actually knowing how to live and act rightly uh, in a way that pleases and honors God. And when we have wisdom, what begins to happen is there is a there is a literal uh, fruit that people can see. Uh, Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus actually said, wisdom is vindicated by its deeds. Wisdom is vindicated by its deeds. Matthew eleven nineteen, a powerful verse. In other words, what he's saying is, where there is true wisdom, there will be true fruit. Solomon established the kingdom with the spirit of wisdom on him. If you feel God is leading you to build something, you need the spirit of wisdom. Because when Solomon built the kingdom with the spirit of wisdom on him, it was so profound the way things worked that Queen Sheba, who was, although not as wealthy, very wealthy, had a, had a large kingdom. When she came and saw what Solomon had, she said, I saw the wisdom of God, and she was amazed by it. She saw the way everything functioned in order. We need the spirit of wisdom resting on us. 
The second thing, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. Understanding is deeply connected with um, discernment. So the opposite of this would be deception. The opposite of a spirit of understanding is deception. This is critical in this hour right now. (laughs) There is so much confusion as to what is going on, what steps should we take, what would it look like for a company of saints to have the spirit of uh, understanding moving mightily on them? That they could be able to say, discern the season and discern which way to go. Ephesians 4, Paul said, prior to Christ, we were all darkened in our understanding. But now as believers, we have the spirit of understanding. I believe the world is longing for, for, honestly, they don't even know it, for the church to be a lighthouse right now. In the midst of so much confusion, say, this is what it looks like. This is where we are to go. This is why this is happening. And be able to lead them out of it. The spirit of understanding gives us an eternal perspective. This is, this is part of the being able to discern is we get freed from seeing things just in the immediate. We lack understanding when all we can see is right now. We start making decisions based on the immediate. What, what is going to bring me most gratification now or whatever it may be, but we live for the now. But when we have an eternal perspective, we have a spirit of understanding to be able to make, make decisions with the understanding of how it affects thousands and billions of years. Jesus had the spirit of understanding on him. That's why he could come to men and say, why do you live for treasures on earth? Live for treasures in heaven. He could see from a different perspective. Spirit of understanding. Just listen to this verse, 1 Corinthians 2.12. Paul said, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So the spirit of understanding is not just so we can understand external things. It's actually so that we can fully understand what has been given to us in Christ. Meaning we can't even fully grasp that we have been justified that we're being sanctified, that we're righteous, we're adopted without the spirit of understanding going, and he breathes on it. And we go, oh my goodness. <laughs> look at what the Lord has done in my life. All right, let's look at the next two. Spirit of counsel. I love that. And the spirit of might. <laughs> counsel means advice, design. It's to strategize. It's to consult with God. So when the spirit of counsel is operating on a life and on a body, the spirit of counsel releases the strategies of heaven. This is so important. I believe, I believe, honestly, the spirit of counsel has led us into the prayer room. That what may have seemed like foolish on the outside, God is saying, this is going to be the way of which I'm going to touch this neighborhood. The spirit of counsel can look like Joshua walking around the walls of Jericho for seven days. <laughs> but you know what? The walls would not fall down without him obeying the counsel of the Lord, without the counsel of the Lord. He got a divine strategy from God that has how to take this. And you know what's amazing? Is if you go through the rest of uh, the book of Joshua, he takes many other cities. But you know what Joshua never does? He never walks around city walls again. Why? Because counsel, this is why we need to have intimacy with the Lord. Because what I, what's happened in my life is God has given me counsel, and then in a future season, I try to apply the counsel from a previous season, and it does not work. <laughs> We need to stay current with the Lord in relationship. His counsel for one season may not be the counsel right now. That's why we need to be actively the spirit of counsel moving on us. Resting on us. 2 Samuel 5 is another great example of this. Uh, David was attacked by the Philistines at a valley, at a certain valley. And when the Philistines came, you know what David did? He runs right to the Lord. 
And he says, Lord, what shall we do? <laughs> he doesn't go intact. He seeks out the counsel of the Lord. And the Lord says, I will give you victory. Go out and take them. He goes and faces them head on. Two verses later, guess what happens? The Philistines come back, same army, same place. Now, if I'm David, you know what I'm doing? I'm going right out to take them on. It worked last time. <laughs> so now what happens? David seeks the Lord and says, Lord, what shall we do? And the Lord says, this time, I don't want you to face them straight on. I want you to ambush them. Same enemy, same place of attack. Only a few verses separate. Two different strategies. The counsel of the Lord changed. So important. Without that, guys, we can be like hammering away, doing the thing we did last. We need the spirit of counsel to say, no, no, it looks like this this season. And then this season. Sometimes it's day to day. Revelation 3, uh, Jesus spoke to the church at Laodicea, a church that said we were rich, we have all that we need. Jesus said, actually, it's the complete opposite. And then he says, I counsel you. <laughs> he says, I counsel you to come to me. The counsel of the Lord provides the remedies we need to heal our brokenness. Like with the spirit of counsel, when people come in and in the natural, we say, I don't know what to do, but the spirit of counsel can actually lead us into how they are to find their restoration. Look at the next one, spirit of counsel and the spirit of might. <laughs> so might, might is not just power, it's not just ability. Now it is, like Samson, the spirit of might. This allows us to actually do the things Jesus called us to do, to bring his kingdom. But the spirit of might is also the courage to do it. So it's, it's not only the, literally the power to do something, it's the internal courage to do it. This is so important. Counsel and might, notice how they go hand in hand. I have found that often the revelation of God must be coupled with the power of God, or vice versa. Power of God must be coupled with the revelation of God, meaning God gives counsel on what to do, but then we need the spirit of might to have the power and courage to do it. <laughs> That's why we need this sevenfold working. If, if you go to uh, the book of Isaiah, um, it's a, uh, two, two chapters before this, it's a, a well-known prophecy about how a the child would come to us. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. What is his name's? Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Notice how counsel and might go hand in hand. We need the strategies of heaven, but then we need the spirit of might to be able to carry it out. The spirit of might obliterates fear and timidity. Holy Spirit despises the wrong fear. Why? Because it robs us of stepping into what God has for us. What I found is that the wrong fear will have us frantically pacing around a mountain that we're meant to be climbing. But the spirit of might will say, the spirit of counsel will say, climb this mountain, then the spirit of might will say, and here's the courage to go and do so. So we need all of it flowing. And then the last two here, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Mark, if you, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just, just put on something instrumental, please. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The spirit of knowledge. There's knowledge. Uh, knowledge can be applied in many ways, like the knowledge of God's will. But what's being emphasized here is a relational knowledge. So what Jesus walked in and what he wants to impart to us and baptize us in is the spirit of knowledge, meaning the knowledge of God. This knowledge goes so far beyond the ability to regurgitate all of the facts that we have acquired about God over the years. That's important, but that's not the knowledge that's being expressed here. Uh, this knowledge is not simply being able to recite our core values or a vision or a doctrinal statement as important as that is. The knowledge that's being expressed here 
is a knowledge that is found from a living relationship that touches the core. This knowledge doesn't just simply inform, it transforms us. Guys, we were made to know God. This is eternal life. And we need the spirit of knowledge to be poured out again. <laughs> I need that in my life. The spirit of knowledge is the antidote to staleness. If you feel stale, it's the knowledge of God that will crush that. If you feel, if you feel stuck, it's the knowledge of God. If you feel like you're just going through the motions, it's very superficial, it's the knowledge of God. If you feel like it's just really shallow, it's the knowledge of God that breaks that. The knowledge of God is the antidote. Paul said in Ephesians 1.17, he said, may God grace us or gift us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would grow in the knowledge of him. Meaning, I can't even, I can't desire, desire alone will not be enough to know God. I need the spirit's help to be able to actually understand him, to know him. And the Holy Spirit wants to release a divine knowledge that pops open a dead heart and says, I have seen him. I've seen him. Like, what would it look like for the spirit of knowledge to rest on a body that when people come in, they say, they're not just singing songs about a God somewhere out there. They know him. They're singing right to him. Their hearts are burning for him. I tell you, fear and like just dryness, all of these things will be broken with the knowledge of God being released upon a body. Jesus told the church at Laodicea, the same church, one of the things he counseled them, he said, you need to have your eyes anointed that you could see. <laughs> now, he used a physical example, but I believe what we're asking for is, God, would you anoint our eyes? Like Paul said, the eyes of our heart that we could see, Lord. God, why do I still just go through these same things? I need to see you. When we be it's behold. The, the, the eyes of the heart is to look and to see, to behold, to be filled with the knowledge of God. That we would see him and say, behold, the Lord is great. Everything, once that happens, everything begins to change. And then the last thing, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. The spirit of the fear of the Lord. Notice how knowledge and fear of the Lord go hand in hand. <laughs> now, I spent almost two months, we went through the fear of God. I want to be, I'll just say this. Jesus has set us free from demonic, crippling fear. He's delivered us from fear. He's delivered us from the fear of Adam. What kind of fear did Adam walk in? When God came, Adam hid. Jesus died that me and you could be one. He's not giving us a fear that causes us to refrain or cripple or step away from. This fear actually binds our heart to him. This, what, what is, the, the fear of the Lord is a jealous love for God. The fear of the Lord is a delightful tremble at the majesty of who he is. It's the, the example I've used before is like me and my wife. There is, there's such a sacredness that I see in our, the covenant that we have. Because I love her so much, I would not dare allow my mind, my eyes, to go in a direction that would harm the covenant because what we have is so sacred. There is a holy fear to stay connected because I love her. It's actually love that's driving this fear. God wants to release a fear of the Lord on the body that's actually rooted in a jealous love. It's a godly stewarding, a zeal to cut everything out of our life that could possibly pull us and actually harm the one that we love the most. It's the fear of the Lord. And the way that you grow in the fear of the Lord is by having the spirit of knowledge. <laughs> because it's as we see him for who he is that the holy fascination grips our heart and we recognize how sacred it is, the one that we've been brought in relationship with. Amen? So why don't we stand?
when Jesus was baptized and came up out of the waters and the heavens were rend open and the Spirit descended and John said it remained and it was without measure, this is the fullness of what was resting on the life of Jesus. And Jesus wants to baptize us in this. It takes us beyond just being regenerated. Thank God for salvation, but this is a clothing of power to be able to walk in these things. And Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. And the one who carried the spear without measure, I want you to just see how, what has had to happen for him to be able to pour it out. The way that you make oil, olive oil, is you have to take the olive and you have to press it. You have to crush it. And when you crush it, the oil pours out. And Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, carried the spirit, bore the spirit in a way we've never seen, and then at the cross, he was crushed for us. And in that crushing, he opened a door for Acts 2, where now the spirit, the oil, could be poured out on a people. So I'm going to ask Pastor Crystal if Pastor Caesar can come on up. And we'll give room at, uh, when they're finished praying to pray for those individually who would like. But I, I don't know why I felt a longing to pray for us as a community first that this sevenfold, because a lot of times when we think about salvation and the scriptures, we always view it from a personal standpoint. Um, but scripturally, we're actually viewed more than anything as a community before God. We are a priesthood. We are a holy nation. And so we want to walk in this individually, but I want to see the sevenfold on this, on this body. Yes? So would you just agree with me in prayer? We're going to just ask God to clothe us as a body, that all of these things would be active in, in our midst, in our lives, in our gatherings. And uh, Pastor Chris, you can go and Pastor Season, I'll, I'll close this out.